We can't let the kids have all the fun. Yeah. You know, I was at the back, and Nathan, you inspired me. Nathan was moving, and I'm like, it's feeling a little too Scottish in here. So <laughs> we need to stand up because we worship God with our whole selves, right? Our bodies are included. So we've talked about that in recent weeks. Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. And this morning, we're back in 1 Corinthians. We've had one reading already from Matthew 21, and we're going to pick up our study of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 8. Paul was writing to a group of Christians who were divided and deeply confused about their new faith. And today we come to the part of the letter where Paul is replying to their cultural questions about how they should live as Christians. In particular, whether they could eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now, that might seem pretty obscure to us, so we're going to talk about that and explain it. Basically, they were wrestling with their calling to be in the world, but not of the world. So God sends us into the world to share the love of Jesus. But at the same time, we're called to be different, to be distinct from the world. Some Christians lean more towards separation from the culture around us. You could say they circle the wagons a little bit. Other Christians are at the other end of the spectrum. They accommodate themselves to the culture and go with the flow of what's happening in the world. Now, all of culture belongs to Christ. Let's be clear about that. But we also have the mind of Christ to discern what we can embrace, where we need to establish boundaries for ourselves, focus. So today is Palm Sunday, and we're going to look at the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem at the same time as we look at 1 Corinthians. But let's pray before we open our Bibles. Dear God, we thank you that you are a God of freedom. And I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would come and give us a word that leads into the flourishing life that you intend for us to enjoy. I pray that you'd encourage us in our friendship with Christ today. I pray that you would open our eyes to what is true and what is packed with your grace. So guide us this morning. Give us a word for each one of us in our particular circumstances. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. That's verses 1 to 13, the whole chapter. Paul says, and here, as he did at the beginning of chapter 7, he's quoting from a letter that he received from the Christians in Corinth. He says, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that, quote, we all possess knowledge, unquote, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that, again, he's quoting them here, an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. 
For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In his book, Humble Apologetics, John Stackhouse tells a story about when he was an undergraduate at Queen's and going to a lecture where a Christian speaker was making a case for the existence of God. And he was nervous about it because he invited some of his friends who were not Christians but the speaker did a great job. He was very knowledgeable. In the question and answer time, a grad student got up and offered an eloquent critique of Christian faith and of the church. He came down really hard on the track record of the church, and everyone wondered how the speaker would respond to this critique. Well, the speaker got up and he brilliantly picked apart the grad student's argument and even made him look foolish in the process. The Christian message had prevailed, or so it seemed. But on the way out, Stackhouse writes that that same grad student was overheard saying to his friend, I don't care if that jerk is right, I still hate his guts. You can be right, you can win the argument, but you can do so at the expense of the relationship, right? We know this. All of us have issues with pride. We think we're right, we think we know better, and we're all part of the problem. But here in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul wants to persuade us that Christian faith is based on love, not knowledge. What matters not, is not so much whether we're right in what we know, but whether we're in right relationship with God who knows us. What matters is not whether we win the argument, but whether we build one another up and extend grace to our brother or sister in Christ and well beyond that. So Paul begins this chapter with now about food sacrificed to idols. What did food have to do with idol worship in Corinth? Well, quite a lot, it turns out. This image shows a reconstruction of the downtown part of the city of Corinth. 
You can see the temple of Apollo there in the middle, and up at the top, a temple to Octavia, the sister of a former Caesar. Apollo was the Greek god of music, poetry, truth, and prophecy. When people worshipped in these temples, and there were many others throughout the city, they would often make sacrifices, and that usually meant killing an animal. And then they would cook the meat and invite their friends to a feast in the temple. And whatever meat was left over was sold in the marketplace, in the agora, which is close to these two temples, as you can see in that image. And a lot of the meat for sale in cities like Corinth came from this kind of temple worship and feasting. Now, if you were a Jew, the prospect of eating meat that had been tainted by the worship of false gods or idols would have been horrific to you. Jews believed that their God was the one true God, and they knew that he was a jealous God, jealous in the good sense of the word. He holds his people to their covenant with him, and he hates unfaithfulness in the form of idolatry or the worship of other gods. So if Jews in the city didn't have their own butcher, they wouldn't eat meat at all because they didn't want to risk eating meat that had been associated with idol worship. So the question that the Corinthian Christians are raising with Paul is this. Can we as Christians eat this kind of meat and can we go to these important social occasions, these feasts held in temples, as long as we're not actually worshiping Apollo or Octavia or any other god? So this might seem like a question that is of no relevance to us. I mean, we don't have temples on the corners of Guelph. We don't worship idols. This is weird stuff, and we are modern people. But the Bible says there's one thing that will never change about human beings, and that is that we are worshipers. Just to give one example, even atheists talk about worship when they fall in love, right? He worships the ground she walks on. You've heard that kind of thing. Or you can think of sports. Take Austin Matthews, for example. The worship team in Sam Booth knew when I came in this morning that the Leafs won last night just by the bounce in my step. So Austin Matthews set a new record for most goals by a Toronto Maple Leaf this week on Thursday night. And after he scored the game winner in overtime, he celebrated by doing this. What is that the universal symbol of? I am humble. No. Ah, wrong answer. Look at me. You extend your arms. You're actually making an arrow pointing yourself with your arms, aren't you? Look at me. And he did something else. As he extended his arms, he did this. That's an invitation to cheer for me, to give me recognition, to attribute worth to me. And that is the definition of worship. Now, let me say that I loved it when he did that. I am a huge Austin Matthews fan. And he was his usual uh, self-effacing, humble self with the press after the game. But even calling myself a fan, even the word fan gets at something deeper here. Where do we get the word fan from? 
Oh, there's the answer. The word fan comes from the word fanatic, and the etymology of the word fanatic is actually religious. Its root refers to a temple or a shrine. And so sports that might on the surface seem like just innocent good fun, and they are that, are also something that taps into a deeper longing within us. I have a friend who struggled for years with an addiction to sports. He would spend 50 to 60 hours a week watching sports and somehow still held down a job. It almost cost him his marriage. And then there's the evil of sports gambling, which preys on those who can least afford it. Now, I'm calling it evil, but we could debate that. Really, it's another example of the kind of thing that Paul is leading us into here. How do we discern what is right, what is wrong, what is acceptable for a Christian? From one point of view, gambling on sports is about adding to the excitement of the game. From another, it's an extra hit of dopamine that has been scientifically proven to be addictive. For the Christian, I would say it's fundamentally a spiritual issue. What do you love? Where do your dreams take you? I hate to admit it, but my mood, as the sound booth recognized and the worship team recognized, can be affected by whether the Leafs win or lose. That's stupid. Sports were a big deal in Corinth. And for fanatics... There were temples to Hermes, the Greek god of both sports and gambling. Those things come together. Hermes had these winged sandals. He was really fast. But even more, those who competed in athletics worshipped the god of victory. Do you know what his name was? Nike. Just do it. But don't be naive about what's really going on beneath the surface. Our longing is expressed in all kinds of ways, sports among them. But God warned his people against idolatry in the Ten Commandments he gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. The first two commands make it clear. He says, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not worship images. And that's the definition of an idol. It's an image. The Bible assumes that worship is the most basic and central thing we do. We were created to worship God and to enjoy him forever. But the problem is that our hearts are not focused on him. They're focused on things of lesser worth. You can think of it this way, and we've said this before. Idols are good things that have become God things for us. The idols in our lives are good things that we've turned into God things or ultimate things. Something like your career, love and marriage, wealth, fashion, beauty, family, fame, education, sports as well. We've talked about that one. All these things are good things. But if we make them ultimate things, the things we dream about, the things we long for, the things we even center our lives on, they can become like gods for us. They can give us value and significance if we seek those things in them. 
And they come to have a controlling position in our hearts. Now, Paul wants to help the Corinthian Christians and us to fight against that, to not conform to that pattern of the world, which is always seeking satisfaction apart from God, turning away from him. That's the essence of sin, rebellion against God. Paul wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to have the mind of Christ. And so he gives us his answer to this question about the freedom of the Christians to eat meat sacrificed to idols. He does that in chapters 8 to 10 of this letter. He starts by listening to the concerns of the Corinthians. Then he establishes common ground. Unity in the essentials, you can think of it that way. He goes on to offer a broader perspective. Finally, as one in authority, he gives them a warning. So first of all, to show he's listening to their concerns, Paul quotes them three times. But he also wants to challenge them as he does this. We all possess knowledge, they wrote to him. And so he shows he's taken what they've said seriously. But he also says, okay, that, that's true, but knowledge puffs up. It can make you arrogant. Love, on the other hand, he suggests, builds you up. You may think you have knowledge, you may think you're right, says Paul, but what really matters is having a relationship with God that puts him at the center. The important thing is not what you know, but that he knows you and you know him personally, his love for you. That is the true path to wisdom, says Paul. And he says the same things about their other statements later. An idol is nothing at all in the world, they say, and there is no God but one. And he agrees with that, but you can start to see where they're going with the argument they made in the letter they sent him, right? They want to be free to go to these parties in the temples. They want to eat all that good food. They're saying that God is the only God and he's all-powerful and idols are nothing. And Paul agrees with them about these so-called gods, that they have no real power. But he also points out that they do exist, that they're real. He says, don't be naive about that. And in verse 6, he calls them back to first things. He calls them back to what unites them. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. This is one of the earliest confessions of the church. It clearly puts Jesus on the same footing as God the Father. It's a creed, a basic creed, but a creed nonetheless, a statement of belief. And it's what they can rally around, even when they disagree. So have you had that experience recently? Maybe this week you disagreed with someone. Maybe this morning you disagreed with someone. Usually, if there's time, we try to convince that person that we're right and they're wrong. We make a case for our point of view. Instead of persuading them to agree with us, what happens sometimes is that we end up farther and farther apart as we try to make the argument. And so Paul shows us, in a way here, a different approach. He listens, he repeats back to the Corinthians what he hears them saying, and then he doesn't tell them off or issue a rebuke or warning right away. No, he focuses on what's true. 
He establishes common ground with them, the faith they share in Christ. We've said that before in this series in 1 Corinthians, right? Unity in the essentials, diversity in the the non-essentials, in all things, charity or kindness. In any conflict, find your way back to common ground, the things you share, the unity in what's essential. Tolerate diversity in what's non-essential. Love is just a fancy word for compromise, one of my favorite singers put it that way. Accept that someone is different from you. Now, of course, it can be hard to figure out what is essential and what's non-essential and where to draw that line. But as Christians, we believe that the Holy Spirit guides us in that together as the local church under the authority of leaders whom God has called to serve him. And we have historic statements of faith that are clear reminders of our essential beliefs, confessions, we sometimes call them. When we agree on what's true and essential, we're better able to work together and to fulfill our mission as the church and to do that in a spirit of charity and grace. So Paul believes in truth. He's trying to broaden the perspective of those who think they know about Christian freedom more than he does. And he points out a truth they may not have considered. For some of the new believers in Corinth, the meat that came from these feasts in the temples was still defiled. They could not see it, let alone eat it, without images of idolatry flooding into their minds. Now, Paul seems to call them weak here, but really he's playing around with words. He clearly does not think these know-it-alls are, are right, that they're actually strong or wise. After all, he's called them puffed up, and he said that they don't know what they should know. So he's not on their side. Which leaves us asking, I think, what is true strength and what is true weakness for Paul? And we start to get a picture of that as he moves on to offer a warning to the Christians in Corinth. He says, be careful that you, the strong, knowledgeable people, don't undermine the faith of someone who is weaker, perhaps a new Christian. If they see you eating at a feast in the temple of a false god, even if you're not worshiping the idol, they may still be tempted to let down their guard, to go back to that old life. And Paul drastically calls that sinning against Christ himself. That's how seriously he takes it. In the next chapter, he comes out even more strongly against participating in what he calls a feast of demons. At the very end here, Paul says, look, I'm accepting this myself. He says, if I eat what causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. He's saying, I am going to practice what I preach. Years ago, I had a couple of friends when I was in ministry in Toronto. Uh, They were at a different church than the one I was serving at, and they wanted to start a new outreach ministry in their congregation. And the idea they had for the name of it was Theology on Tap. The plan was to bring beer and Bible together. How do you like that for an idea? They were going to meet in the grad student pub on the campus of the university, of York University, to talk about ideas related to God and faith. 
And they wanted to reach out to people who never would have gone to church or joined a Bible study, but who might have been willing to read an article about Christian spirituality, especially if there was free beer thrown in. This was their idea. And they wanted a budget, some of which they proposed would go to subsidize the free beer. One free drink per participant. Now, this was a conservative church, and as you can maybe imagine, if you're familiar with that scene, this created a little bit of controversy in the church. <laughs> some people loved it, but most could not accept the idea that there would be an official church ministry in a pub where people were drinking beer. For them, that was just wrong. Another group was especially upset at the thought that the church might actually pay for the beer. And still others thought that this showed incredible insensitivity to those in the congregation who were struggling with alcoholism. Now, in the end, these two young adults who were friends of mine who wanted to start this outreach got so frustrated that they left that church. And I wish they hadn't. I encourage them not to. I wish they'd stayed because unity in the essentials is what we need to come back to whenever we come to that place of conflict or disagreement. But when we are in disagreement with one another, it's critical for us to stay and to work out our diversity and our disagreement as the body of Christ together. Otherwise, we never learn to forgive and to love one another. And we never grow up in the faith. We risk remaining shallow and immature. But the reality remains that sometimes when we think we're right, we behave like we're up on a high horse. You've probably heard that expression before. Well, that's how Alexander the Great did it. In 332 BC, he rode into Jerusalem on the most beautiful horse in all of history, as accounts describe it. His Arabian steed, the legendary Bucephalus. Bucephalus was one of the greatest racing horses the world had ever seen. Sleek and beautiful, chosen for his speed, strength, intelligence, loyalty. Some of you, I know, love horses. You know how magnificent they are. And when Alexander the Great died at the age of 32, after having conquered the world, basically, the known world, his horse was buried with him. But we see Jesus enter Jerusalem on a donkey. And his message that first Palm Sunday had a single word as its theme, and that was peace. You don't ride into a city claiming that you are its rightful king on a donkey. You just don't do that, much less a donkey with its young in tow. Donkeys are slow. They're stubborn. They are the work animals of poor people. They're not impressive. They're downright annoying most of the time. I'm told this not having much personal experience with donkeys. 
And yet, this is how Jesus wanted to be seen. The prophecy that we heard in our call to worship said that a donkey would bear the coming king, the Messiah, into Jerusalem. And we see here that Jesus is a king like no other. Sometimes we call this story the triumphal entry, but Nike would not have been impressed. This pathetic, sad little man, humble and riding on a donkey. But Jesus says, watch me. See what happens next. Follow me. Believe in me. Rest in me. And you will have the peace that you long for, the satisfaction you crave. And that's the second half of the prophecy that doesn't show up in Matthew 21 in the cartoon we saw. Zacharias says, on behalf of God, this is God speaking, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will will be broken. He, the coming Messiah, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. If the gospel is true, it's true for everyone. It's true for you and me individually, but it's true for the whole world. Palm Sunday points to a coming peace. I went to a high school in Toronto that uh, had, it was a French school, it had a motto uh, in, um, in these words, connaissance est false, which translated means knowledge is strength or knowledge is power. And there was quite a lot of pressure in that high school to acquire knowledge and to pursue achievement, to build your CV, to get into the best universities. And when I was in grade 12, there were some grade 13 kids. This is back, remember that when we were five years of high school? If you're in high school, you can just thank God today that there aren't five years still. So some of the older kids, the grade 13 kids, were trying to recruit people to help with a partnership that that the student council had established with a Uh, international humanitarian organization. So they pitched it to the rest of us at at an assembly that this was a great way to strengthen your university applications and build up your resume. And I remember the teachers were really upset about that. They thought that, that that was wrong. And I recall a discussion in one of my classes where a friend of mine, who was actually Muslim, said, well, why shouldn't that be the motivation to build up your resume? When knowledge is power, and the message that we get in this school is you need to be ambitious, to get ahead, to look after yourself, most of all, on what basis would you do anything else with your strength? I'm not saying that Christians have a monopoly on serving others. We know that's not true. We are self-interested sinners just as much as anyone else. But Jesus is entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and uniquely offering his weakness as the principle and the power in our lives. And the principle is to live for others, to honor the weak and to serve the poor. The power is the power of the cross, and it's the power that is going to change the world as we remember this week. 
Jesus ultimately offers himself. He is the humble king who goes to the cross for us, who lays down his life so that we can be forgiven and be in right relationship with God, known by him, satisfied by him through Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote about a very difficult situation he was dealing with. He said, God told him in that adversity that his grace was sufficient for him, that his power is made perfect in our weakness. So the message of Palm Sunday and the message of the gospel is that true strength and true weakness are not about being right or about exercising your freedom. No, Paul points us to Jesus who gave up his power, who lays down his life, and he says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God even chose you and me to fulfill his mission in this world. He doesn't want us to boast about our achievements or our knowledge. He invites us not to pursue our own self-interest first. No, he wants to bring all of us together in Christ. He wants to heal the divisions in our families, in our church, and in the wider society we're a part of. He invites us to trust him And then he gives us his peace, his wholeness, his grace. So I want to invite you this week to consider doing something that lives out this weakness principle we see in Jesus. I find whenever I'm in an argument, the most natural instinct I have is to want to get the last word. Can you relate to that? What if this week you resolved to not get the last word? Even if you were totally convinced you were right and the person you were talking to was wrong? Well, that would be hard. You would need to pray for the Holy Spirit to prompt you to keep quiet, especially in the heat of conflict or disagreement. But I believe that God calls us to lay down that kind of privilege and that he uses our willingness to submit to one another as a way of leading to peace. So let's bow our heads and just ask in the silence for God to to show up in our lives this week, especially in the relationships we have with people we find difficult. Let's pray. Dear God, we don't want to be puffed up by our pretense, by our wanting everyone to look at us, to acknowledge us. We know that that path leads into darkness. And so we pray that you would give us an extra measure of grace so that we can be part of the incredible thing you're doing in the world through your church of building us up in love, not based on knowledge, but in love, in willingness to lay down our own interests for the sake of another. Maybe that other is someone we're friends with. Maybe it's a family member, brother, sister, 
one of our parents, our child. Maybe it's someone you work with, a neighbor. Lord, would you give us a sign of how you want us to do that? May we be known as believers, as followers of Jesus for our kindness. We pray in his name. Amen.